Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. Sarah Emma Edmonds may be one of the greatest masters of disguise in military history, as she was able to switch from being a betrothed 17-year-old girl in New Brunswick to a 21-year-old male volunteer named Frank Thompson, to a male slave, and then to a female Irish peddler woman, and then back to a woman and survive to tell the tale. Sit back and listen to the latest episode, The Tombs of the Unknown Crossdressers, a tale of women who served heroically and died in the American Civil War, only to be forgotten, thus becoming yet another missing chapter. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Missing Chapter. I'm Phil Schaff here with Phil Horner, and we have a special guest to give us a, a great coffee review today. So, Chris, the mic is yours. Hey, guys, it is great to be here. We have a fantastic episode coming up. I'm so excited. But we also have a fantastic cup of coffee in front of us. We have an Ethiopian Yerga Sheffa blend, which is gifted to us by my friend Rebecca Winters, who is the owner of High Wheeler Coffee. This coffee is produced by Crew Coffee Roaster, which is a coffee roaster. Um, it's right located in Saratoga, New York, so it's a local business. High Wheeler Coffee is a cafe on 84 Canal Street of Fort Plain, New York. Um, that's owned by my really good friend. And so she gifted us this great brew. Um, and I would say, tasting it, it has a very unique, florally, and sweet taste to it. Um, one thing I didn't know that Ethiopia is actually the oldest coffee growing region in the world, as we know of right now. Um, and these beans are sourced directly from there. And so, Rebecca, thank you so much. This coffee is amazing. And it's a great way to start a really great podcast episode. Chris, thanks again for the review. And Rebecca, once again, thank you for the coffee. Um, everybody, thank you for joining us for another episode of The Missing Chapter. I'm here with Phil Horner and our special guest, Blake Smith. And now we've gotten uh, a ton of great reviews, lots of feedback from episode four, uh, The Lost Dutch Diary with Blake. And I got to tell you, if anyone is interested in, in the story today, there's no one more interested than, than me. Because after hearing the introduction, after just a glimpse of what Blake had to tell us about this topic, this has got to be one of the most random, obscure, but also the most interesting stories I think I've ever heard. So I'm super excited, Blake. Uh, we'll hand the mic over to you. Go ahead. Thanks, Phil. And, uh, you know, I, I picked this particular topic to discuss from one of the reasons that you guys started Missing Chapter, which we, you and I and Phil love those books about obscure. No way. That didn't happen. And that's kind of got us started on this whole thing. And in fact, one of the main stories that I heard first, which was my no way story, was this one. And, it, you know, it comes from a book of kind of unknown history stories, which we have the origin of most of our stories. And I kind of was, I was thinking about not doing this particular story. And then I thought, you know, this is actually a really good one. And I think it's time to do it. So it's about a woman whose name was 
obviously Sarah Emma Edmonds. And she was a young lady who lived in, in New Brunswick, Canada as a child. And part of the reason that I'm going to do this story is because part of her story was the fact that there are many, and what I learned as I dug deeper into Sarah Emma Edmonds' story, is there are many women who fought in the Civil War and yet were never recognized as women. They fought either under a male's name and were buried in a tomb under the name of a man, or they were never known to be a woman and just buried in mass graves, which was extremely common. In fact, I was in some of my research, the research that I found, it said there was an estimate that nearly half of all Civil War soldiers were unidentified. Half of wow. them. They didn't know who they were. So the identification, you and I, we went to Gettysburg together and we saw those tombstones that said number 1653 or whatever it was. There was no name. So there's plenty of those. And so I started thinking about this concept of people being buried without markers mm -hmm. and this unknown. And actually, Phil brought up the concept of the unknown. And I started thinking of the tomb of the unknown soldier. And I did a little research on that and the whole process. But I was thinking about all those tombs of unknown soldiers all across this country. And it could be thousands, definitely hundreds, but could be thousands of the people that are currently lying under graves marked with names that aren't theirs and should be a female's name. That's incredible. Yeah. So, um, and, and what's interesting too, is we, you guys have heard of course of dog tags. And that was one of the reasons they added dog tags in world war one was this large number of unknown soldiers. And in fact, in world war one, they still had unknown soldiers with the dog tag, but at this point they did not. And so I started thinking more and more about female soldiers and female fighting as men. And I, you know, I thought about like, in our own country that women only recently can fight on the front lines, right, you know, right. in, in your lifetime, you know, where they kind of for so long, women couldn't fight in combat and they could serve in the military, but in different roles. And of course, as historians, we teach that, you know, right. in yeah. World War One, women did this and in World War Two, women did this and added on as we went. But and then I started thinking about this kind of there's an interesting kind of a dynamic that people of all walks of life tend to like and that is the story of mulan and i started doing a little mulan research and mulan was extremely popular in fact the um re-release this uh, live action thing was the, the number one paid for live streaming uh thing ever and so mulan up uh, it got passed by the way but it was it was this very popular thing and i was what is the attraction of mulan and in fact i was thinking about you know with regards to mulan my own son and my son riley who's almost 30 and he knows every disney movie backwards and forwards. And Mulan's the one he goes back to. He just goes back to Mulan. He loves that Mulan. He's a 30 year old boy, you know, and the Mulan's something about that story. He loves that one. And my you young know, girls do that too. They, they love Mulan. Yeah. And I, try, I try to think, what is it about that Mulan story that's so attractive versus Lion King or whatever. And there's something about that. And, and I kind of like that. So, um, so I, we'll start with this Emma Edmonds part. And so, as I told you, I learned about this from a book and, um, I started researching into other women who had fought in war. And it turns out there's many, many women who are women cross-dressers, and that's what they call them. In fact, if you Google women who fought in war as men, Wikipedia comes up cross-dressers of war, and they talk about them. And in fact, they talk about men who dressed up as women. It was less likely, and interestingly enough, men who dressed up like women often were doing so to get out of the military, whereas women dressed up like men to get into to get it. In. And wow. that's, that's kind of what Phil and I, when we found out the general idea of what you were talking about today, I'm thinking to myself, well, what's the interest to get into the war. <laughs> if I'm thinking to myself, what motivates someone to want to actually find their way into battle as, avoid, as opposed to avoiding service? Well, we're going to talk about different women at different time periods, but in the Civil War, there are four basic reasons. The biggest one, believe it or not, was money. Mm -hmm. um, they were offered $152 kind of $52 bonus 
to join, which is a big amount of money. So finance is one of, was one of them. Um, adventure. Uh, they said that often women join for the same reasons that men did. Um, desire to, to support the country. Patriotism was part of it. Um, in some cases, I found that it was trying to get away from kind of an abusive father. This is part of Sarah Edmonds. Um, oftentimes women were, um, including her, were told they're going to marry some man. And many of them would pick up and say, I'm not marrying that guy. I'm, I'm taking off. So there were a variety of reasons. But I, I, as you, we had this discussion, I'm not sure they knew what they're getting into. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm sure most soldiers had no idea. In yeah, the Civil War. That's a great point, because what's their reference point about what actual battle is like at that point? None. Right? Right. Prior so, to the Civil War, what are we talking about? Is, is there anything 1812? Um, um, Mexican-American. Mexican-American. Yeah, there's, there's, so you had a, right. So, you, I mean, you really didn't have that solid of a reference point for what war was actually going to be like. No, clearly or, not. Or that, I mean, and most people, I would assume, if you joined, you saw battle. I mean, it was probably rare not to see actual time on the battlefield. Yeah, and these women, like... Even if you go back in history, like we talk about different women who have fought, you know, Joan mm -hmm. of Arc, she didn't need to dress up. Right. right. You know, she was a woman. Somehow people followed her even mm -hmm. though she was 14, which is a story in itself. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, you know, there's other ones. There's British women. Um, Hannah Snell was an Englishman. 1700s poses a man to look for her husband. So she dresses up like a man to go find her husband in battle, finds him dead and takes over his role. And serves wow. as, as oh takes over control of that. There's another woman, James Barry. Her name is not James Barry, but she went as James Barry, was an English military surgeon in the 1700s who was widely believed to be a woman. And most people knew she was, but they're like, I don't care. She's, we'll, talk, we'll call him James. Um, and in the American Revolution, you know, I learned something that and I've been teaching this for a year about something called Molly Pitcher. Molly Pitcher is, a, is an exit on the New Jersey Turnpike, the Molly Pitcher right. exit. And I always thought, Molly Pitcher, Molly Pitcher isn't a person. Molly Pitcher is like Rosie the Riveter. She's a symbol of women mm. who fought in the American Revolution. Oh my I gosh. never knew that. I thought it was a person. You know, it's, I thought it was some lady from New Jersey because yeah. it was a New Jersey thing. And it turns out, and I'll get you some. I'll give you some examples of these Molly Pitchers. They call them. But it turns out that no one really knew about them. Of all people, John Adams, President John Adams' grandson, goes on a national speaking tour talking about Molly Pitchers, oh my the gosh. origin of the word, and he wanted everybody to realize how important these women were to the winning of the American Revolution. Um, there's a couple other ones. Here, here's some of the women, the, the female uh, Revolutionary War people, and one of them, right start at the beginning, is the one I'm going to talk about a lot. And her name was Sarah Wakeman, and Sarah Wakeman, um, she's going to become a, a man named Lyons Wakeman, and I'm going to talk about her later. Um, another woman, her name is Cathay Williams. And Cathay Williams, C-H-T-H-A-Y, Cathay Williams, changed her name to William Cathay. She was an escaped slave woman who dressed up like a man to be a soldier. Cathay Williams, whoever heard of her. Um, another one, Margaret Corbin, traveled with husband at Battle of Fort Washington. She found her husband dead and took over loading the cannon. She was hit by cannon fire, but survived her injuries. She was buried with full honors in West Point Cemetery. You know, so if we go to West Point Cemetery right now. You find Margaret Corbin. 1777 or whatever. In that That's shack. incredible. And, you know, I think there's something about the military and being able to, to fight. We think about what the military has done in terms of racial equality. You know, do you really care if the person in the foxhole next to you is of a different color? I'm almost thinking in the heat of battle, if the person next to you loading the cannon is a woman, who cares? Yeah, what's who the matter? You know, yeah. so it's like there's something about the military that helps break down those barriers, I think. And, and I'm, I'm hoping, you know, Maybe we're seeing the same thing with gender equality that we saw with race equality early on. And, and why weren't they allowed? You know, right, it was exactly. like, what was oh, that yeah. whole thing? And we talked about the Victorian era, of course, mm -hmm. the, the, the male chauvinist attitudes of the time. But um, 
a couple of interesting little stories too. Here's another one. There was a New Jersey woman who was um, promoted from corporal to sergeant for her behavior on the battlefield and gave birth the next month. <laughs> That's unreal. Yeah. Um, and Sarah Edmonds, who I, I um, talk about later, she um, you know, will, will list many, many stories. And some people question those stories, but they're really good. But one thing this woman I found who did an article, she actually did her PhD thesis on women in the Civil War. She said, Thompson's dedication was typical, meaning the woman mm -hmm. I'm talking about. Um, fully 15% of women soldiers sustained battle wounds. 18% were taken prisoner of war and 11% died while serving. Overall, women soldiers had a combined casualty rate of 44% compared to 30% for their male counterparts. These figures combined with women's 14% promotion rate, four percentage points higher than their men's, all suggest that female soldiers were especially dedicated members of the Civil War military. You know, so here's you know examples of these behaviors that in which even the male military people are recognizing it. Right, right. And so they're getting promoted more than that as and a person. And I don't want to get dying too, more than that. Yes, yeah. I don't want to get too far ahead here, Blake. Um, but the, is are you are you seeing more women on one side versus the other? Was it more union? versus confederacy or or, or I would say vice yes. versa i would say yes but we don't i don't think they know as much about okay. the, the confederacy but there are some confederate women and a good question mm -hmm. and we, i'll talk about one of them um there's this one woman i can't think of her name offhand but she actually and i, I tried to dig up the info but the story is that she was with robert e lee for like most of the time at most of the battles and in fact there's a story about this woman at the battle of antietam she ran in the front or something and opened up some gate to allow the cavalry to come in. And what's weird is she was fighting on one side and Sarah Emma Evans is on the other side. No kidding. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. amazing. That's so, incredible. you know, it's hard to imagine that they would, that I would bring these ladies together, you know, right. all these years later. But, um, when but, you, I'm sorry. When you, when you think of those, those, those numbers and those percentages though, and you, you take those percentages and you actually put them to numbers. Those are actually massive amounts of numbers. You know, forty percent—that's that's a that's a yeah. big number for when you when you count soldiers total in the Civil War, and then on top of that, for them to be promoted and have the and know that they're they're going into battle, and and I mean, I'm sure people talk to know that you're essentially have a higher percentage of of casualty rate. Not only are they fighting to get into the battle, like there's got to be, like you asked earlier, there's got to be more motivation than just I want to do something different. It's got to be some sort of intrinsic motivation inside these women. Because it seems are, like they're fighting, but they're fighting like almost overly heroic. Exactly. They're out yes. there to prove themselves. Yes. And think about this too. The whole time they're doing that, they're trying their best to keep it all a secret. <laughs> right. So they're fighting this whole time, trying to keep it a secret. And guess what? When their secret doesn't um, isn't no longer a secret, when they get hurt. Because if you get shot, they got to cut you open and look, oh, hey, yes. you're a woman. And so that was the biggest fear is they got, and many of the women, they would take off after they got injured mm -hmm. because the punishment was jail. Now, if you were a woman, you were caught, it was jail. In fact, I, I may get to this one later, but when I talked to you about this. There's a story I looked up about a woman dressed as a man, as a jailer, who was being the prison guard of women who were in jail for being men. <laughs> Here's some irony there. Yeah, yeah, yeah you can this up. So <clears throat> in my research, I start digging around, and of course, I, I try to find other women and so forth. And, and there were all these stories, tons of little cute stories. Mm -hmm. And I found this one, and her name was Sarah Rosetta Wakeman. And the reason I, I stuck with her was that she, as a man serving in the military, sent back series of letters to her family. And those letters were telling of her time in the military, which is one of those things soldiers do, mm -hmm. write letters. And I've talked to you about the importance of letters and how I love letters and I, I don't write them enough and how I think that the best history comes from letters because you're honest and you're, you're talking to your mom, you know, or you're not honest. 
you know, things are okay here. You're trying, but, but letters express kind of a unique way of looking at it as opposed to just somebody writing a book about watching that. And so this woman wrote a series of letters and the story basically of hers is that she lived in New York state and she was born in Afton, New York, which is outside of, of Oneonta. And she was a kind of a tomboy in a family of nine. And at one point she just got kind of tired of it all. And she kind of ran away and she dressed like a man and she got a job working on a, on a coal ship, a coal boat on the Shenango canal, which we talked about was a canal that connected Binghamton with Utica, which was the uh, kind of a spur of the Erie canal. So she worked on this thing. And during this time she hears now the problem was that she was either going to get married or she had to work as a servant and she just couldn't make enough money. Her parents were struggling. A lot of times women would look back and see a struggling parent and realize I can get money from my family. So she was offered $152, which was the bounty to join the military. And how else could a woman like that? So she dresses like a man, which she had already been doing. She signs up into the military and she signs up in the 153rd New York volunteer infantry. And as I pointed out to you guys, which we all just kind of jaw dropped, the 153rd volunteer industry was out of Root, New York, otherwise known as Fonda, New York. So the 153rd, this woman was cross-dressing as a man in a unit about 15 minutes from here. Right, right, right down the road. Yeah. Yep. And it says, if you look her up, it says her letters home provided a unique glimpse of life of a woman posing as a man. Because they, you, could, you wouldn't want to do it because it would expose you. You, know, right. you would know if what they found right. out. So, um, she, as I said, eldest of nine um she signs up they they take this group and by the way her her description is uh described her her features are described in her when she signed up she was five feet tall fair skin brown hair they have all this now she was interestingly enough she served in virginia and in the capitol building she describes being in the capitol building where soldiers we heard of being on the floor and and being as a, a she saw that and other things she saw was she she said she looked up and she could see um on the hill mumford hill the flag of the confederacy flying just over the river from the capitol building so that just shows you how close civil war was wow. to kind of like being the capitol being taken over um she is killed by cannon fire and she is buried in Louisiana in a cemetery, in a federal cemetery in Louisiana under the name Lyons Walker, which is the name she took as Lyons Walker. And you can, to this day, her, um, her tombstone sits there with that name on it. And um, so this again goes back to the story about Emma Edmonds. And the story is, is all about this Emma Edmonds. I was kind of like, think about these people and all these people that are buried under the wrong name. Or under no name, unknown, yeah. Or assumed to be a man under a name, or no, under no name. Right. <laughs> so it's this kind of crazy thing. So I started thinking about all these things, and then I got, of course, got back to Emma and Emma's story, which is really better than the others, and um, so and which is why she's in this book. And so Emma, basically, she starts as a nurse, but her life is begins. I said in New Brunswick, her father was mad at her because she was a girl. So she was born, she was the third daughter of this group. He wanted a boy, he didn't have a boy and he was, he was a farmer and he was mad. And so her whole life, she had to kind of live up to this resentment toward her from her father. And so and finally her father uh, hooks her up with some guy. She's 17 years old, you're gonna marry this guy. And she says, no, I'm not. And actually with the help of her mother, she escapes. And she had been kind of dressing like a man a little bit and she picks up and she moves to all things to Michigan. Now how she got from New Brunswick to Michigan is a, surprise there's no you know i guess you could go by train but she gets out to michigan um she gets a job selling bibles in hartford connecticut which is another weird thing and then she uh, maybe she went to connecticut and then she went to michigan she signs up with this michigan infantry as a man as frank thompson so but there's kind of a, a cool story here this is from her book by the way 
it says, I'm just going to read it because it's kind of cute, but it says, a wounded Dutchman lay writhing in a makeshift Washington, D.C. hospital following the Battle of Bull Run, a mission that for the Union had begun with frivolity and ended in bloody tatters. If the bullets had been brutal on the flesh, the hospital menu wasn't much better in the way of promoting health he um, healing. Excuse me. Hard bread, greasy pork, and bitter coffee did not have the same medicinal qualities as chicken soup. The Dutchman, firmly believing his life had depending on getting a bite of fish to which the stomach had been accustomed to all his life, he grabbed a young nurse who was making the rounds and said, Ze fish, I must have, he implored, mein Gott, I must have ze fish. The nurse in the Civil War provided both physical and psychological backbone for soldiers. They knew what mattered most. In this particular chance, uh, opportunity, the nurse scampered to Hunter's Creek, baited a hook, and in a matter of minutes pulled a very large eel. No matter the Dutchman was enjoyed a special supper and rested that night. So she, the guy's I want fish. She runs out, catches the fish and feeds him. So that's kind of the beginning of kind of these weird stories. So now she is not a woman. That is Frank Thompson doing that. So this guy who thinks this nurse is a man is actually a woman getting him a fish to, to eat. So in the book, it's funny. It says, Sarah Edmonds is a complicated girl. Yeah. A little bit complicated. <laughs> okay. So what she did was she cuts her hair. She moved from, uh, did I say New Brunswick? Yeah, I I, originally. So. Yeah, I yeah yes. it, it's, it's Nova Scotia in this book, but I've read New Brunswick because I'm mm -hmm. they're wrong. But she moves to Michigan, signs up. Um, uh, it was not uncommon. It says one of perhaps 500 to 1,000 women on both sides who disguised themselves as men and joined the ranks. And you say, well, how could they possibly do this? And the reason is, is because they really didn't care that much. If you kind of could hold a gun, if you could march, if you could kind of carry on, we really didn't care that much. And many of them were little, were young boys. You know, so you're 16, 15 years old, you got no facial hair, you know, you had a little boy. And so a girl could kind of look like a little boy. And therefore they were able to get away with it. And they said that the only restrictions were you couldn't be obviously club footed, a reasonable understand of which end of the rifle was to point, <laughs> and that you had to have two teeth, one opposing one another to be able to bite off the, the uh, packet to put the, oh, the gunpowder in there. And you had to have one finger. So that was enough to get into it. But there was no physical exam, no, you know, drop your pants, none of that. All right. So there was none of that at all. So they could get away with it, nor did they really want to, I think. I'm not sure they wanted to catch them. Was even as, this was at the beginning of the war, too? Yes. Okay. Yes. Because I'm, I'm I'm picturing at the beginning of the war, they're a little bit more selective. They don't know how long this war is going to be. And then maybe later on, they're like, listen, we need, we need casualty it. numbers are off the chart of what we were expecting. Yeah. And, um, and a thousand, as you can think about a thousand versus, you know, remember 600,000 Americans right, died. Right, so right, right. it's kind of small relatively, but still. Um, and they talk about the uniforms were bulky, soldiers often bathed in their own clothing, you know, these kind of things. So that's how they were able to get away with it. So it wasn't that difficult for a woman to fake it, but clearly not easy. Um, they talk about one, it says one wife fought alongside her husband and also a sister along her brother. A woman was shot in, ch in the chest at Antietam. Another woman was killed at Gettysburg, believed to have participated in Pickett's Charge. And this was my, one of my favorites. You mentioned about, did they fight for both sides? Molly Bean of North Carolina probably fought at Gettysburg too. She served for two years. And when it was discovered that, that she was a woman, it was assumed that she was a prostitute. So Molly gets caught. They assume she's a prostitute. She says, no, I'm not a prostitute. And they threw her in the insane asylum. Are you kidding me? After having fought for two years. Oh, my gosh. From, from patriot to prostitute. Right, right. That's unbelievable. They said, it said if prostitute, it would have been understandable. When it turned out, it wasn't insane asylum. So if she if she had admitted to being prostitute. a prostitute, she wouldn't have faced that consequence. Yes. That's incredible. Right. Oh, my gosh. But we haven't even gotten to... <laughs> Sarah's Emma Edmonds's disguises because she's currently just pretending to be a man, Frank Thompson. 
And she does fight. Oh, and I, I didn't tell you this part, but she seems to be at every major battle of the Civil War. And there's some historians say, no way, she couldn't. But I'm talking about Bull Run 1 and 2, Vicksburg, Antietam, the what? big ones. Yeah, all the, the Peninsular Campaign. She was definitely there. And that's one that almost took Richmond. She, and it's interesting, too. She's detailed the letters and she writes this detail because what happens is she writes a book. So she comes back and she writes this book. And some of it may have been, you know, I told you she might yeah. have been telling mm-hmm. you. Little folklore. Twisted, yeah. little folklore. But the book is called Nurse and Spy in the Union Army. It was a sensation after the war and remains interesting as a tale of the war from a woman's perspective. All right. So she kind of put it, went into this kind of a short book and she actually traveled and, and talked about it with, yeah. as well as Sarah Emma Edmonds. Um, but let's talk about her becoming a spy. So um, as I said, she had an arranged marriage. Um, she dressed like a man to get out of there. Okay, so she served under General McClellan. And we know McClellan. Mm-hmm. He was the leader of the entire Union Army at one point. Battle of Bull Run 1 and 2, I said this, Antietam. Fredericksburg as well. Mm-hmm. And I had a question mark. Like, how is that possible for her to be there and survive? That's right. what I was going to say. For anybody to have been there and survived all of those. Okay. So she gets into this, and now she's really into it. And she's kind of into being a man. And she's got these, she has these friends, too, who are also maybe doing a little spying. And one of her friends gets exposed as a spy and executed in mm-hmm. the South. And she's upset. So she wants to take his place. So she wants to become a spy, to take a place of two, actually, two people who she knew who were killed for being spies. And which is interesting because the spy part is going to gonna, gonna be spy versus spy in a minute. So what she did was she decided she was going to um, portray herself as a slave. So... And a male slave at that. So here's a woman becoming a man. Now she's going to become a male slave. So she has to get a curly wig and she covers her face with silver nitrate in order to darken it. What? Silver nitrate. So she chemically stains her face. She sneaks down into the South, somehow crosses into line and pretends to be a slave and hangs out with slaves and somehow is able to convince the slaves that she's a slave. And she tells a story of one point where she's sitting around these slave guys. Oh, she came into these, this group when she first came in. And a southerner goes, hey, boy, where are you from? What are you all? He goes, she said, in, in a dialect like that, she said, she goes, I was free, Massa. I was free. And he goes, oh, you're free? Well, here's what you're going to do. And he put her back to work. And he told her, we don't have free blacks in Virginia. You get back to work. And so she must have disguised her voice as well. Yeah, I mean, she, was, she was able to fake it. She In, in her book, she uses diz and dat and all that kind of you know, colloquial African-American t- terminology. And then the tone of her voice. And I mean, apparently she, had no problem putting herself in, in dangerous scenarios no, either. I mean, t- let, let's, let's imagine for a minute, I'm a woman who's going to portray myself as a slave and go into the slave states. <laughs> right. It uh, says here, um, um, a Confederate officer who inquired about my about who my master was, I answered to my best Negro dialect. I does belong to nobody, massa. I's free as allers was. I's going to Richmond to work. But that availed me nothing for turning to a man who was dressed in citizen's clothes and who seemed to be in charge of the color department. Take that black rascal and set him to work. And if he don't work well, tie him up and give him 20 lashes. Wow. So they knew. They wow. It says here that, that also while she's hanging out, at one point they're hanging out and one of the slave people next to him goes, I'll be darned if that feller ain't turning white. Sure enough, the nitrate of silver was wearing off, and Edmonds told the members of the group that it was to be expected as his mother was white. And then while they were thinking that one over, she scooted out to reapply the chemical solution. But then I started thinking about that. She probably picked the wrong race. My mother was white. That means a black man and a white woman? 
Oh, I didn't yeah. even think about that. I, yeah, I, I, I did. Right. Yeah, I did. Now for the slaves, doesn't matter, but you know, so she probably should have picked the other because it's pretty point. common for white men to come upon their right. their black slaves. Wow. All right, but so she always gets caught. That she gets away with it. So then, after she goes over and she actually gets um, information, and one of the things is while she's back there, she sees a spy for a spy, and she sees a guy that's been hanging out at Union, hanging out with the Unions, and then he came over and she saw him. And he was giving information to Confederates, and she knew that. He, and she says in her book, his days were, were short. And she told on him, and they did get rid of him. And, it, and wow. it goes back to the execution of her own slave, of her own spy friend. So there may have been. So she was able to kind of sit back and see this person who was supposed to be just like a salesman uh, from the north, but he was actually a spy. So she was had some success. She also, um, it says here. I'll tell you the story. It says. Um, she listened, stunned, as the paper salesman began to spill all manner of Union secrets. Only one detail seemed to bother his conscience a bit, that being that he had given away the position of Lieutenant V, a fine man who had been killed as a result of his intelligence. Edmonds fought back a cold chill, taking comfort only in the knowledge that from that point on, salesman was a dead man walking, and that Lieutenant Five was that one, was her friend. Wow. <laughs> She's proving her worth, I'll tell you. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. And um, so not only does she do this, but then she comes back and then she it says here in May of 1862, she morphs again into a female Irish pie salesman named Bridget. Oh, Bridget, they're always after me, Lucky Charms, <laughs> with a brogue good enough that the Confederate Irish considered her one of the rare old stock of bog trotters. So she was able to fake her Irish accent good enough to be a, a, a woman Irish peddler, but she's actually a man, as Frank Thompson, but actually a woman. Oh, I, she's choosing some nationalities and some things here that are not easy to mimic either. And and, and she's amongst Irish people, right? right. Who, yes. who, That's what they said that they call she's an old bog trotter. I mean, she's just like us. So she's able to fake it obviously well enough. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. So this is, we're almost done here. So um, she eventually, after all this, and there's other, she dressed up like other people too, but this was, those were the most exciting ones, but eventually she gets sick. Which is interesting because it's the number one cause of death in the Civil War by far. Civil War, just she got dysentery or something. Mm -hmm. And I told you, once you get sick, that's the problem because right. you're right. going to take that's the hospital. It. So she runs away and she goes to another hospital, takes off her Frank Thompson, goes back to being Emma Edmonds. The only problem is now Frank Thompson is a deserter. Oh no! So she gets out of the hospital. She comes out and she sees posters of herself as a man saying Frank Thompson wanted deserter and desertion from the military was death. Right. So she now realizes she can't go back to Frank Thompson. So now she goes back to being Emma Edmonds as a nurse. So it says, um, in better health, she started to return to her regiment, but thought better of it when noticed posters seeking information about the whereabouts of one Frank Thompson deserter. She finished out the war playing the role of herself, ministering to the sick and wounded in Washington Hospital. She married after the war and had three children. Ultimately, her service was acknowledged and she received an honorable discharge and a military pension for her role in a small but passionate sorority. So eventually the government will recognize her service and give her a military pension, even though as this person, Frank Thompson, which sort of she served as. How far after the war? I'm curious, Blake. I mean, is this something that she yeah. had to wait for and things had she to kind did. of change? And She did. She fought it for a while and they finally agreed to give it to her. Right. Yeah. Because that had to be rare. I mean... There, in the Civil War, there's weird ones that I skipped over. Like one of them, this woman pretended to be a man 
got killed in the Civil War and then was able somehow her husband husband was able to get benefits of her spouse being killed in the war. Wow. Right? Which was designed obviously for women. Right. But that was the first time that a man got a spousal um, benefit from the a woman serving in the war as well. Um, but and now we go back to the to the finish of the story, which is so nice. And so we talked at the beginning of the, of the story about women who served as men and were never recognized for their service in the war. And therefore, there's tons of these unknowns, right. these tombs of the unknowns all over the place. And the tombs don't have to be a tomb. Sometimes there's a hole in the ground. And in fact, this is the final story of Emma Edmonds. So it turns out that Emma Edmonds is now not fighting in the war anymore, but she's serving as a nurse, as a woman. So she's on the battlefield. And she's on the battlefield. It says somewhere in the rolling hills just outside of Sharpsburg, Maryland, which is Antietam, was or perhaps to this day an unmarked grave containing the bones of a soldier who wanted to remain anonymous. Edmonds understood. In fact, she dug the grave herself. After administering to the soldier who had suffered a mortal neck wound in, at Antietam, something about the youngster caught Edmonds' attention. Mm-hmm. And something about Edmonds gave the boy dying, the dying boy confidence. Quote, I can trust you, the soldier said, and I can tell you a secret. I'm not what I seem, but I, a female. I enlisted from the purest motives, and I have remained undiscovered and unsuspected. I have neither father, mother, nor sister. My only brother was killed today. I closed his eyes. About an hour before I was wounded, I will soon be with him. Her last wish was to be buried by, off by herself, her secret kept for eternity. It would take a special person to be able to fill that request. And the chances of discovering such a person at that particular point in time might have been only a few out of a couple hundred thousand. And yet... According to Edmund's account of what had happened in a sea of men on a field of honor, sister had found sister. W. Edwards Deming once wrote, the world is drowning in information, but slow in acquisition of knowledge. Help spread information by following us on Instagram and liking us on Facebook today. Thank you for listening to the Missing Chapter podcast with us, Phil Schaff and Phil Horander. You know, Blake, I, I have to say there were so many things you touched on in this in this episode that that really kind of resonated with Phil and I. I think where you left us, though, before the break was was such an amazing moment. And you think of the term fate or you think of like, what's the probability something would happen for those two people to find themselves in that moment on the battlefield is really remarkable. It is. And and I think it's just a it's a it's a really nice way. I know you're going to tell us uh, some more about some. Uh, stories that you were able to research, but I think it was a great way to kind of wrap up all those important points that you did touch on in your episode. Yeah, I almost hate to kind of mess with it, yeah. but um, I just want to talk about the last, the end of Emma's life. Yep. So, and and it was, she was Sarah Emma Edmonds, but she did go by Emma eventually, and that's Frank Thompson. So in the end of Emma's life, she goes back and lives as a woman. And one interesting thing, as we looked into the women who served as men, some of them remained as cross-dressers. We talked about the one person who continued to, and they said that you're insane because of it. So some people, but the vast majority of it were doing it just to portray themselves as a man in order to fight. And a lot of them went back. So she marries a man um, whose name is Linus Seeley. And it turns out Linus Seeley fought in the same regiment as she did. They marry, she has uh, three children. And she only lives to the age of 57, which I guess in those days, maybe that's a long time. Um, But she does, interestingly enough, go to a reunion of the Michigan regiment that she fought in back as a woman. And she was welcomed by the soldiers. They also um, looked into 
the remember that she was charged with desertion when she was Frank Thompson. And so as Frank Thompson, so she actually and the, the group fought to get her Frank Thompson, her alias name removed as a deserter. And she did. And Frank Thompson was given a pension by the United States of America for the rest of her life. <laughs> Even though Frank Thompson was not a person, it was, in fact, Emma Edmonds. Um, the other interesting thing I, I said is she's the only there's something called the G.A.R. And if you study Civil War history in the aftermath, it's called the Grand Army of the Republic. And it was kind of like it was a veterans group, but it also had political clout. It, it got people elected. Um, it, it's, it's, it's well talked about amongst in the history. And she's the only woman ever admitted to the Grand Army of the Republic. Now, she dies at a relatively young age of 57 after an amazing mm -hmm. life, as we have seen. And her life was shortened by the sicknesses that she got fighting as a soldier. Because as we discussed, that was the thing that gave her up. She got malaria, some sicknesses. She had to go to the hospital. She couldn't go to the military hospital to be uh, exposed as a man, and therefore she took off. So it did shorten her life. But as we've seen, it's a pretty good life in terms of the ones she led. And one that was, was somewhat known, too, because she did travel. She wrote a book, or she had a book written about her. So she, was, she did lecture, so people were aware of her, but maybe not enough. Yeah. And as we people said, you know, I've never heard that one before, and nor had I. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit briefly. I know this is going on, but I wanted to talk briefly about the other woman, the woman that came up with um, Sarah Rosetta Wakeman, who was from this area, who actually mustered, which means joined her military group in Fonda. And um, she was a very interesting woman and um, unknown and nobody knew about this. And so I love the fact that it kind of was this, this mystery and unknown, completely unknown until what happens, this guy goes to his attic. Now it turns out from, and it took me between a little while to find this, but the man who found it was in 1940. His name was Jackson Doan. He lived in Binghamton. He found these papers. There was letters, a photograph of her as a him in a picture and a silver ring that was in this group. It was in a pine box. He opened it up in 1940 and apparently didn't read it or just kind of like left it, but he was aware of it in 1940. I started to wonder whether maybe the family was a little bit embarrassed by yeah. it perhaps, and they didn't want it exposed. So for another 36 years, nobody learns about that. And then in 1976, it's finally read and brought out, became acknowledged and recognized. And in 1992, a woman um, investigated this, did her PhD thesis, and wrote The Uncommon Soldier, the story of uh, Sarah Rosetta Wakeman. And I always thought that it was kind of interesting that this woman, as we've talked about, who is buried under the name of a man, would never really have been known had she not written those letters and had them, they been saved and ultimately found. Right. That's incredible. And then done something with, too, because for the longest time, they just sat there. I mean, to open up a box and have a ring, a picture, and letters... I mean, that's like what you, as a historian, you dream of finding that right. in your house, yeah. you know, and. And I think sometimes one final thing I want to talk about in terms of us being teachers is I think sometimes people worry, but what do historians do? What are you, what do historians do? They find this stuff out. They, yeah. they learn this yeah. stuff. They become experts. Somebody is a supersonic expert on Edmonds, you know, right. on this woman. I'm now pretty good at it, but somebody's really smart. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they went to college and they got a PhD and they studied this. And as I dug deeper and deeper, I found these people whose PhD theses are very, very specific things, including cross-dressing women in the Civil War. And who played a much larger role after hearing your story than I ever could have imagined. Yeah. And I hope the, the listeners are, are feeling the same way. Yeah. And I think it's only appropriate that we're going to be airing this. We're going to release this in March, which is uh, National Women's History Month. 
And um, Blake, it's, it's always a pleasure. I mean, there's a reason that we, we view you as our mentor and somebody that uh, really is the epitome of a good storyteller. And I think, you know, the listeners based on, on episode four, and I think based on what they hear today, certainly agree with us. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Shaw. I'm Phil Horinder. And I'm Blake Smith. And another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.